a lot of this stuff is so recent and still evolving. There's so many more studies to do to really start tuning into, okay, my biggest passion is how can we change the course of how the female athlete is training now? And not only training, but how can we change them nutritionally and help them out nutritionally so that they're always performing optimally and they're adapting and recovering correctly. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey guys, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine. We are sitting down with Kara Killian today. She is a researcher at California State University Fullerton at Andy Galpin's lab, Molecular Muscle Exercise Physiology Lab, and she is currently doing research on muscle fiber type specific protein signaling in athletes during high intensity interval exercise. What does that all mean? We sit down to talk about how hormonal changes throughout the month play a significant role in training programs for men and women. We talk about what muscles of the ideal athlete look like and how you could achieve that through diet and physical conditioning, common mistakes and pitfalls people make during their training. And ladies, listen up. She gives a really great insight through her research on what part of our cycle are we most prone to injury. If you feel like muscle medicine is adding value, rate and review. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this episode and subscribe to Muscle Medicine Podcast. Thank you. Kara, you are a muscle research coordinator at Cal State Fullerton. Do you want to tell us the current cutting edge research that you're working on? Yeah. So, Emily, uh, one of the biggest things we're working on is looking at gender-specific differences as related to high-intensity interval exercise and creating a time course for that at a fiber-type-specific level. So looking purely at these, you know, type 1, type 2A fibers, you know, I can't go into too much detail, but we're also working with disease patients as well, looking at really what happens when you go from a healthy state to a disease state at a single fiber level. So we're actually looking at each individual muscle cell and really seeing healthy versus diseased population, really what's going on at a single fiber level, at a single muscle cell. So it's really awesome stuff to be able to do this because it's only you know, really been the last you know, 10 years or so that we're actually looking at this much of a scope. So to break it down super simple for our listeners, when you're talking about high intensity, what kind of exercise are you talking about? So really what we're talking about in, in most cases is interval training, really to make it even more simplified is in that high intensity interval exercise. Now you could also call it training, but in this case, it's just a single bout. So just in one day, say you're doing one training session and not on a cycle, you're not doing multiple days. It's intervaled out in the sense that maybe doing 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. That's the basic, you know, across they call it the Tabata. But in my case, in our research, we're looking at about a minute and a half as hard as you possibly can go. And we do have a mask on. We are taking gas exchanges and then two and a half minutes of a rest. And we're doing that six times. So it's very taxing. It's very fun. 
to be a part of and see that dynamic go on. But you can really, in an exercise setting and a single bout, you can really manipulate that however elite or much you're starting getting into training when it comes to how much you want to interval. And these people are on treadmills, sprinting? On a bike, on a cycle. So we use a cycle. You can use a treadmill. It's very well known that your VO2 max or your rate in which you exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide or your gas exchanges are going to be about 6 to 12% higher on a treadmill than they will be on a cycle. That's just because, you know, most people run on treadmills. Uh, simply put, most people don't, you know, unless you're a pure cyclist, you're not on the bike too often. So you're always going to be more adapted to a treadmill test than you will or treadmill intervals, especially at a high intensity where you're really gassing yourself out than you would be on a, on a bike. And obviously, uh-huh. yeah, trained cyclists have some crazy VO2 maxes, but they're also used to the bike. Put them on a treadmill, it's a little bit different. So every mode matters. Nice. Can you explain to our listeners the difference in muscle fiber types? Yeah. So there's six known fiber types to the human body. There's the pure ones that everyone really knows and loves, or or I should say the three pure ones, but I'll start with the two basic ones. There's type one, and then there's two A. Now, type one is our aerobic fiber. It's most known in endurance athletes that, you know, body type, thin frame people, most of them, you know, you can suggest that they have a lot of type one fibers. That's that aerobic fiber has more mitochondria. So has more oxygen capacity to do that type of work to do that long, long training cycles where a 2A is more anaerobic. So it's more known as it's the hypertrophy fiber. It's going to be based off of lots of weightlifting, lots of resistance training. You'll develop a lot more 2A fibers. And then there's the 2X, which is kind of the third fiber that people know about, but it's not in as many people. It's kind of percentage-wise, it's very minimal. We actually did a study a couple of years back where we saw that you know, one elite, elite world record holder sprinter had in the double digit percentages of 2X, which hasn't been seen before. And the 2X are mega fast fibers, as we call them. So there are speed and our explosion. Uh, you see it in, you know, MMA athletes, those, those are 2X. So we have the one, the 2A, and then the 2X. And then we get into more of those hybrids. So then hybrids really just mean they're not pure. They're a mix of one of the three pure fibers. So we have one, 2A, which has been seen a lot in the research in female track athletes, actually. So it's actually getting more and more interesting as the difference between males and females, muscle physiology-wise. And then we have 2A, 2X. And the last one then is a 1-2-A-2-X, which is called a rare – it's a rare triplicate. And it really depends. I mean, it could be a basis off a disease why you have a lot of the, the triplicate. It could be a basis off of – you know, it really does depend. That's what's so interesting about this research is when it comes to a lot of these fiber types, every factor in your life really determines your fiber type, even your sleep, your lifestyle factors as nutrition, how much you little or – untrained you are, the exercise you're actually doing most often or least often, and your stress levels. So can you explain how AMPK plays into this picture? Yeah. So AMPK, kind of simply put, 
MBK is kind of the master, as it's known, the master energy regulators in metabolism. So AMPK, you know, it's gotten very popular nowadays. I think I actually just saw something the other day that even rosemary activates AMPK, just rosemary oil. And and it's just crazy the amount of things coming out. But AMPK is the master cell energy regulator. So say you're in a day of fasting or since fasting is become so popular. We'll use that as an example. When we're in a fasting state or we're in a low caloric state, AMPK is actually activated. And when AMPK is activated, it helps cell turnover. It helps your cells rejuvenate themselves. It helps metabolism increase or decrease, be able to let your body perform at its highest level. AMPK is actually even stimulated by nicotine, which you know is is funny to say because it kind of makes sense when you look at say the smoking population or why bodybuilding back in the day a lot of them also smoked as you kind of you put two and together it's like oh maybe it had something to do with AMPK but it really is you know that's more of a suggestion but AMPK is is part of any type of cell turnover anything revolving a state where you need more energy you need more metabolism AMPK is going to be activated. So when you're looking at these different fiber types, what are you finding with AMPK? So right now, I have to suggest that it depends factor only because we're still in the middle of this research. But really, what we're seeing is that when it comes to AMPK and, and, and fiber type specific adaptations, AMPK really is very multifactorial, which goes to say that, again, the fiber type is only one piece of the equation that AMPK and when it's activating is also highly dependent on fiber type. So, you know, it's not to say that we have any conclusive data to show that one thing is more active than the other. Now, there has been a lot of studies that have shown that, you know, it might be more active in the type 1 versus the type 2 A's at a pure fiber level. But it's so new in the research. That's what makes it so exciting is that there's been so much research on AMPK in disease populations and not as much in the healthy or the athletic populations. And that's where we're really trying to, and I'm really excited to break ground with, you know, at this level to start to show what do healthy individuals now look like at this level and not so much we love to fund disease research and that's great, but I'm really interested in now what are the athletes looking like on a time course, you know, pre and post exercise. And what's the research in terms of AMPK, which is related to increased metabolism, increased cell turnover in the diseased population? Yeah. So AMPK in the diseased population in regards to what has been shown is that AMPK really is, it helps with not only the cell turnover, but when it comes to helping you stay as functional as possible, you know, because AMPK as, you know, I'm sure, is others have heard before, but AMPK is also inversely related to, I like to say inversely related to mTOR, which I'm sure you've, you know, you've had previous guests on that have, you know, mentioned this that are way more upscale when it comes to what's going on with mTOR and their research, but it shuts off mTOR to a certain extent. So AMPK helps with that cell turnover, helps with rejuvenation, helps get that energy marker up in the metabolism where mTOR will help induce hypertrophy, will help kind of give you those, as we say, gains. When AMPK is activated, say you're in a state of disease and you're trying to really just stay alive and stay healthy, it's going to 
possibly, and we can suggest, shut off mTOR. And AMPK is then going to help us turn over the cells, become stronger, stay more alive, and help us recover. Got it. I saw an Instagram photo. I think you were carrying a cooler full of tissue samples. Yes. Is that what was going on? Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that was uh, – we also work – You know, I'm under Dr. Andy Galpin at Cal State Fullerton. And we also work with a team up at San Francisco State University with Dr. Jim Bailey, who houses our huge uh, laser microscope, very, very expensive piece of equipment. And he actually does a lot of our tissue imaging where we can actually get down to the nucleus. And we know a single muscle cell actually has a lot of nuclei, kind of depending on your training status and your health status, also environment. But he can get it down to, and that's what he was taking in the photo, is all the samples we were then bringing back up to San Francisco State to then get imaged and actually get really, really awesome pictures of what's going on at the single muscle cell, the nuclei, the proteins. And obviously, there's a lot of different proteins in each muscle cell, but we're looking at specifically the signaling of AMPK. We're also looking at, you know, a few things like TBC1D1, TBC1D4, which are actually downstream targets of AMPK. And all that means is they're very, very long names. I don't know why biology created the, <laughs> they're very long names, but really all the <laughs> TBC1D1 and D4 uh, are just related with glucose transport. So when AMPK is activated, the downstream targets, so those, let's just say TBC1D1, is then helps shuttle glucose in and out of that individual cell. I see. So from this research that you guys are doing, and you're looking at both male and female athletes or just specifically female? Oh, male and female. female. Yeah, because the cool part is, you know, there's a lot of studies done maybe just on the male or on the female counterpart, but we really want to see if we looked at females at their most basal level. So most basal hormonally is just saying estrogen wise, that would be days one through 10 of their menstrual cycle. So when they're on their cycle, when they're on their period, so to speak, how similar, there's going to be differences just biologically because that's, there's going to be differences in gender, but how similar training wise and adaptation wise are they from males? And that's where the interesting part comes in because we really, it just really depends. We really don't know. And my biggest key is, is when we have the female population, we finally finish off, you know, looking at the females and, and kind of gathering all this data. Is there going to be as many differences as we think there are? Or is there going to be minimal differences? Or is there, are they going to be indifferent at all? And we control for estrogen and we have um, females when they're at their most basal level and most similar to males hormonally is at a single fiber level are they similar now? So there's a potential, right? Because as female athletes, I think we're expected to train like men, like we train hard no matter where we are in our cycle. But what you're saying is there's a potential that based on where our cycle is, our fiber typing Mm -hmm. could be different and that we would need to train differently, whether it's more aerobic or anaerobic based on where we are in our cycle. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that makes me so excited is because in one big pet peeve of mine is when I see females, you know, looking up to a lot of male athletes and then trying to train very similar to the males when we know we're two different species, really. And as 
Andy or Dr. Galpin says all the time is females are the higher hanging fruit. We're harder to study because we have so many other factors going on hormonally, especially at a single fiber level in the research that we do. What we're most famous for is fiber typing. It makes it a little harder. And when it comes to training status, I would love to see females in this fitness industry and transitioning industry start to gear more towards these exact differences in how females should be training in regards to their cycle or neglected of a cycle. So there's a lot of females out there that are on birth control or they're on different forms of you know, birth control or they don't have their cycle at all and it's dysregulated. Well, how can they train accordingly to still get results or maybe get, you know, so they're having a normal cycle again? This is cutting edge stuff. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And oh that's why it's funny because a lot of Dr. Galpin, you know, says this all the time, his big catchphrase is, it depends. And it, but it really is true. It's hard to say sometimes because this is so new. And it's one of the biggest reasons I came out here is that a lot of this stuff is, is so recent and still evolving. There's so many more studies to do to really start tuning into, okay, my biggest passion is how can we change the course of how the female athlete is training now? And not only training, but how can we change them nutritionally and help them out nutritionally so that they're always performing optimally and they're adapting and recovering correctly? Because you can only you're either adapting or you're recovering, you know, and you you don't want both going on at the same time. Well, they can't happen both at the same time. And it's 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 so interesting to see how just even just going off the basis of fiber typing, how we can start to look at the human and each gender differently because we are really two different species. And for so long, we treated us as the same men and women as the same you know, thing athlete-wise, and that's just not the case. So do you think female athletes should be training differently from males to potentially achieve similar results? I think that female athletes, and that's a great question, I think that female athletes – because of the men, especially if say a female has a normal menstrual cycle, I think that throughout your month, you should have a different training cycle than your male counterpart only because, and this is really my own personal experience working with a lot of athletes myself. What I've seen is that when hormonally males, you know, have their little shifts throughout the day and, and throughout the weeks, throughout the months, where females as female athletes, we have huge shifts throughout the month. It's not a day-to-day basis. Yes, we have the minimal day-to-day hormonal changes, but we have huge shifts in the month, you know, throughout weeks. And to think that we can be on the same training program and have the same performance outcome is really asking for, in my thought process, a miracle because we're not the same person. So we're not going to have the same adaptations. We're not going to have the same stress response because we're so different hormonally throughout the month in a male. So for a female athlete to think that I'm going to be on, you know, the same program as my training partner, which a lot of people have male, female training partners nowadays, to think that they're going to have the same performance outcome because they had the same training just doesn't, you're not the same person. You're not even the same species. So to think that at the end of the month, you're going to have the same results, it's not going to happen. You're just hormonally two different people. Right. Absolutely. Also on a injury level that women could potentially, like, I feel like every time I've gotten injured, it's always been during the same part of my cycle. Yeah. (laughs) And I've had four ACL surgeries from college basketball, so I can attest to that wonderful injury fact. And it's funny because as we get towards the beginning of our cycle and Emily, 
when did it happen? Did it happen right before you started your cycle? Did it happen after, during? It happened right before. I feel like I got a little bit of like an energy surge right before, like maybe like three to two to three days before. And then I have a little bit extra like, oh, I'm going to hit it hard because I'm feeling really good. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same time point in which all my injuries happened to me was actually all my ACL tears were about a week, a couple of days out before I actually got my cycle. And it's funny because that seems to be the case. And this is something, a whole nother study I would love to get into is being able to biopsy females and look at some of these intercellular changes prior to the cycle, because that seems to be the consensus about everyone, where everyone's either getting injuries or getting more sore. And that really just comes down to that's when estrogen is really starting to drop. And it's a pretty sharp drop for a lot of females. And that's when you're at your highest risk for injury because not only is it is a sharp drop, but you're also really high and peaked at like a couple, you know, the week out before it starts dropping. So injury-wise, testosterone's low, estrogen's high, and there's progesterone as well, but let's just to keep it simple. There's testosterone and estrogen, and testosterone's low, estrogen's starting to go low, so both are starting to get lower. And we don't have too crazy of a change in testosterone, but estrogen's really the big one that starts to change a lot. And when we're getting before our cycle, when estrogen starts to drop and testosterone is so low, now we got two things that are low. Hormonally, we're at a huge disadvantage when it comes to how we're going to recover. So there's been a lot of texts and stuff out there that, you know, the week before your period should really be, or those couple of days before, just based on, you know, your own, because I love this. A lot of people say feel isn't real. I think feel is definitely real. Uh, <laughs> you definitely need to feel is definitely real. It's, it's definitely a thing. You know, you definitely got to know your body. And, you know, for me, I know a couple of days out, like it, as much as I want to push it, I really have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, this is not the time for that, that once I'm on my cycle and once, you know, it's actually occurring, I can start to pick it back up again. But those couple of days before, that is a, a red flag. That is a goat, ironically, red flag to, <laughs> yeah, uh, red flag to, you know, start toning it down a little bit. Maybe I take out a session. Maybe I start doing more yoga. Maybe I, you know, meditate a little bit longer. I find things to do that is still advantageous for my life, but aren't going to stress my body so high that I'm actually at risk for injury. So what other factors change muscle fibers? Yeah, so yeah, that's a great question. A lot of factors, really everything. And that's what's so cool is because nutritionally, you can completely change, you know, and we did a study a couple, you know, actually before I came to the university, an epigenetic study. And we actually did three biopsies looking at untrained versus trained males, just specifically males, no females involved, uh, field participants. And it was crazy to see the difference between the trained versus the untrained and their epigenetic response. We did another study, which Katie Bath got did that's actually, you know, she's a great grad student. And we did it on her monozygous twins. So monozygous just means they have the same DNA, same DNA at birth. But they were 30 years separated. So they went about their life. And then there was a 30 year time period where one athlete, one one of the twins, was a trained, you know, triathlete, ran miles and miles. They had actually log books of years. And the other, the other twin was pretty much a sedentary individual for 30 years. And we got to biopsy them. And it was crazy to see that 
just based off of the, their monozygous twins, so they were the same, same DNA. They had totally different fiber types just based off of one, really one big lifestyle factor. One was trained and one was not. And the quality of the fiber type, not necessarily the quality of the muscle, was actually an interesting point there. Uh, the Their fiber type was so different from each one, even though they were the same, technically, DNA-wise, the same person. So like epigenetics at its greatest right yeah, there. Yeah. So the train twin was, you know, seven, I could point you to the paper. It was 70 so odd percent of type one where the untrained twin was not even close. Well, wow. for 30 years, one twin was completely untrained while the other one was ran, you know, upwards of, you know, 40, 50 miles a week and was running triathlon after triathlon and the other twin was not. And that's just a training lifestyle change that can change your fiber type, let alone nutritionally, sleep-wise. Now, like like I kind of was alluding to, even your hormones, you know, your stress levels, they can affect your fiber type. You know, we had worked with NASA in the past and just looking at the, you know, or bed rest patients. You know, bed rest patients, the moment you're bed rest and you're laying down after a week, you know, your fiber type is going to start to change a little bit, not to, you know, crazy extreme, but your body changes and adapts to the situations you give it fairly quickly. And that includes your fiber type. So like sleep. Yeah. Fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. We can expect a, a fiber type change, you know, with consistent, say you're untrained, you start training, you can expect your fiber type to change at least, you know, around about 10% in just a few months of training. Which is why you know a lot of athletes, you know, big, you know, big time bodybuilders, big time elite, any elite athlete, if they're training, if say you start training and you're training really hard for six weeks, you're gonna need at least one week off to let that body adapt to the stress you just gave it, to be able to keep the not only the muscles help, but keep the fiber types, you know, your fiber type specific adaptations adhered to, and allow you to recover so you can go hard again for another six weeks. Say you went hard for six months straight, like a lot of people getting ready for huge competitions, you probably should take a month off completely to allow your body recover from all the stress because it's not just the muscle itself, but all the hormones that innervate it, the training you're actually doing, the stress you're under, the sleep habits you have, you know, are you even meditation? Are you meditating or not? Do you have a practice? Do you what is your training mode exactly? Are you someone that's always on the treadmill? Or are you always in the weight room? Or are you a swimmer? There's so many factors that it's crazy to even think about sometimes because that's where the individual differences really come into play is because every single person is different, which is why I'm really against the whole template push-out system where I give the same training template or the same recommendations to everybody because everybody is so different. No same template's going to work for the same two people. So if you had an ideal athlete in mind... What would be their fiber type concoction or hybrid? Mm. Yeah. If I had the ideal athlete in mind, I would definitely look for them to have a lot more two A's than the average, say, untrained individual. Because we're starting, you know, in the within the research and it's pretty, you know, clear that the longer you keep your two A's, the longer you keep those quote unquote anaerobic fibers, those resistance training fibers, the longer you'll probably live. Because if we think about it from a, a growth standpoint, as we get older, as we age, what's the, f- the first thing to go? Your muscle, your strength. And when you start losing 
muscle strength, you start coming at risk for, say, a hip injury or your neuromuscular balance is off. You're maybe not walking the same and, you know, you have that hip fracture. Now you're in the hospital, you start become, you know, very frail and weak. And it all starts you know, at the muscle level. It all starts that single cell level. And it's pretty well known that those the longer you keep those two A's, the probably the longer you'll live. So I would love the perfect fiber type athlete would primarily be two A's. And I really think that's where it's at. Obviously, there's going to be tons and tons more research that we're going to be looking upon to really keep suggesting that fact or that that research and that situation. But it's it's becoming apparent that two A's are really the fiber type. We need type ones as well. We need some of those hybrids, but there's something about two A fibers and the you know bodybuilders from life experience, or let's say they're not on steroids, but from life experience and these big time elite athletes that are very mesomorphic or just say muscle bound. They're you know they eat one the one carrot and they gain five pounds of muscle. They're just, <laughs> yeah, we all have, we all know that friend. We all know that friend that eats, you know, can eat garbage and still look pristine. I think eventually we're going to start seeing that those guys are just keeping their two A's longer. They're keeping that type, that cellular fiber type, that, that single muscle fill, that type longer. And they have more of them. So I love this, you know, the, that perfect athlete would have a lot more two A's probably a few two X's because that really does, you know, that is that mega fast fiber. That is that speed explosion fiber, which is interesting in its own capacity in its own right. But two A's are, I mean, there's a reason why resistance training is starting to become more and more a thing and it's starting to get more and more readily out there that, you know what, if you're going to do anything, at least just go in the weight room, at least just weight train. Now it's a whole nother conversation to say, well, are you doing it right? But getting in the weight room, maybe not doing so much running because Lord knows everybody loves, (laughs) everybody loves to say, well, I'm trying to lose weight. So I'm just going to go for a run. Well, is that going to keep you healthy long-term? Everybody loves yoga out here in California. (laughs) (laughs) Yoga will not maintain the muscle mass, ladies. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it'll definitely keep you flexible. I have nothing wrong. I'm not against any form of exercise. I think everything has its place and everything is there for a reason because Everyone, again, mentally, physically is a whole is a different person. And I think there's a time and place for everything. But I think when you do anything too far long term, not only does your body to the point where it's so adapted, it just won't change anymore. But if the point is to constantly get better, doing just one mode all the time is not going to get you there. And it's not going to help your muscles adapt and get better. And we, everyone's trying to get rid of stress nowadays, but we got to remember that we need stress to be able to adapt and perform better. You can't just neglect stress. We can't just always recover. If you always are recovering, you're now blunting inflammation. You're blunting stress, and you need some, you need some form of stress to adapt. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like every single day in our clinic, and we see probably 75 percent women. It's mm-hmm. every single conversation is you need to start resistance training. Yeah, and we're going to show you how. But now here's the research. Like if we're if two a is like where it's at in terms of longevity mm-hmm. and living longer. It, yeah. I feel like everyone should be picking up weights. And yeah. that's really what I tell all my patients. Yeah. And I applaud you for that because actually it's funny because there's a lot of, there's a lot of still that bro science out there that 
even especially in females, and this is my biggest pet peeve, and everyone who knows me knows like this this conversation always fires me up when people talk about uh, females gotta be on a whole another spectrum than the male population. No, that's not the case. Like everyone should know how to weight train or weight train appropriately and resistance train appropriately. Will there be differences in the volume, maybe? Yeah, it depends. It depends on your training status as well. It depends on how long you've trained, how much you've adapted, how much you've grown. But to say that females should only be running on the beach half naked, <laughs> uh, taking selfies, and going to yoga class every single day, well, that's not true either. You know, we need that. I don't really a huge believer in balance because I don't think if I think if your life is balanced, then something's wrong because we should always be adapting to something, always be dealing with some type of imbalance or stress. But you need a form of you know, weight training to be able to, to grow and keep, again, those two A's that I really think are the, the game changer when it comes to longevity and game changer when it comes to overall health. So what do you think? So even to just get even more niche down in terms mm-hmm. of resistance training, so in our clinic, we do a lot of strong first style kettlebell work because mm-hmm. it's kind of easy to negotiate form. It's easier to clean up form. Mm -hmm. Like, What do you think would be seen differently in terms of fiber type and how people feel versus really heavy, slow, low rep lifts? I mean, we do both personally, but typically when we're starting people on, you know, most people look at our kettlebells and are like, that looks scary. (laughs) Like, do you think there would be a difference in the presentation of fiber type with those two different kinds of resistance training? Yeah, it would be it would be silly to say that there wouldn't be because we all know every every exercise really has its own nuance or its own type of stress response it's going to have at a single fiber level. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, I love it when clients or a patient or an athlete is intimidated by something because that probably means they should do it. And it probably means their body wants it and needs it, but you just haven't done it yet. So creating that buy-in and trust with them that is possible and is capable to do is really the first thing. And for me, it really just depends depends upon their foundation. So foundationally, you know, if it's a light enough kettlebell and we're just learning how to have a functional range of movement, I think that's your go-to first. When it comes to if you're trying to build just pure strength and you're trying to just help them build up just a certain range of motion or a certain muscle group, I think just a basic foundation of strength that normal bodybuilding-esque foundation is more appropriate. But it also depends on that that patient, that client, that athlete's, you know, starting point, what the starting point is, what maybe injuries or what's their background, and where are they trying to get to? What's their goal? Because everyone's goal is different too. So if their goal is to become more functional, be able to get up out of a chair, to be able to, you know, walk around and play with their grandkids or play with their friends, maybe we start with the kettlebell. Maybe we don't. Maybe they're just they're already an athlete and they're just trying to get range of motion and strength back. And they already have that athletic performance base. Maybe we're just trying to get them stronger. So we're just going to go right into the piece of the bodybuilding piece, just pure resistance training. Those say they're say they're already trained, they're an athlete. We can maybe start with eight reps or less. If they're untrained and they're just starting off and we want to be with, say, the kettlebells. We start with more than eight reps, maybe eight, nine, 10, 11, maybe going all the way up to 15. And we work that base first before we start dropping down to any type of strength component where we're doing eight reps or less on the kettlebell. Got it. How has doing this research and knowing this knowledge, because 
like anyone who dives deep into a subject, we kind of are like, oh yeah, everyone knows this, right? Like everyone knows yeah. muscle fiber types. And But like how has knowing and diving deep into this research changed your training? Oh, that's- like how do you train? I'm so curious. <laughs> yeah, it's changed tremendously since being out here. I mean, the moment, you know, and my good friend and one of your good friends, Dr. Garbo Lyon, you know, she's really the main catalyst as to why I came out here and realized how important this stuff is, is once I came out here and started working with Andy, I realized how much can actually change at the single muscle cell level based upon anything that you do. So really what's changed for me is being way more specific about my time points of what I'm training and when I'm training it. So really, I say that to say this, if I'm going to have a morning where I'm going to be doing just pure resistance training, say I'm doing cleans, front squats, maybe some Bulgarian split squats. Well, I'm not going to go right from that right into going for a four mile run right after that. Because what I what I just did is I just, and there's some people that can get away with it. There's always that percent of the population that can do both. But what I just did is took two different forms of training. I just did pure strength training, resistance trainings, you know, power. And I then told my muscles that, and then say a half hour later, I just told it the exact opposite. So I just confused my body and it's not going to change to my desired goal if I confuse it in two different ends of the spectrum. So really biggest thing that's changed for me is if I'm going to do resistance training and I'm just going to do that in the morning, I'm going to wait at least four, five, six hours if I'm going to do two, say two training sessions in a day, I'm going to wait at least four hours, probably more. I usually wait about six before I do a more endurance-based or a more cardiovascular-based training session because we know that it's going to take that much time at least for your body to recover and adapt to the prior stimulus so that I can get the same result or say if I have multiple goals, I can get the same adaptation I want from then my endurance session. So not to say, is it going to kill your gains if you do 10 minutes on the treadmill before you start lifting? No. But (laughs) if my goal is to get bigger, well, then let's get bigger. We don't need to be running four or five miles. We don't need to be doing sprints. And one of my very you know, good friends who was a mentor of mine, Mike Gadengo, out of Freak Strength in Oakland, New Jersey, you know, he doesn't let any NFL guys you know, ever do anything longer than even 200-meter runs. All they do is short sprints because they're explosive athletes. They're, they don't – in a game, when are they ever running – more than 90 yards ever. Even if they run 90 yards, they're running 10, 20, 30 yards sometimes. So they should never need to be any more explosive to that they don't need that type of endurance training. So being way more specific with my training and being way more conscious of, okay, if I'm training this, if I'm just resistance training in the morning, if I really need to do a second session at night, either you're just sticking to that endurance component or that cardiovascular component or you're not doing it at all. You're waiting till the next day. It's even better to even wait till the next day. But we know if you're an athlete and you have multiple realms or multiple things you need to accomplish, you can't exactly, you don't have the time to do that. So you have to do two, three, sometimes three sessions a day. And breaking it up purely like that is very advantageous for you as an athlete or even a, a trained individual to be able to start implementing. I love that you're talking about two a days. <laughs> yeah. I just started getting back to that because I'm getting ready for a uh, 
a big opportunity in September. So I kind of have to be dialed in when it comes to my own training. So I've changed. I went back to two days. <laughs> I'm feeling it though. Nice. I feel like that's a, you're kind of breaking down what maybe a common mistake we see when people are working out or even in the fitness arena. Yeah. What other mistakes or downfalls do you see? I would say another big mistake I see is let's go back to the fasting. So everyone and their mother now loves uh, fasting. I'm doing a juice cleanse or I'm, you know, I'm doing a water cleanse. I've met a few people that have done water cleanses. I, you know, that's great, but I don't know if I can do that yet for myself. Sounds like torture. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like torture, but there is a time and place for everything in this, in this world for sure. But Interval training. So as you know, we we're talking about earlier about that high intensity interval training or high intensity exercise where you're doing that really, really hard bout. You're taking a recovery period or say a walk break and then you're going hard at it again for, you know, 20 seconds, maybe 10 seconds up to a minute, sometimes two minutes. I'll see people doing that fasted in the morning. So they'll have a morning session where they're fasted and then doing high intensity interval exercise or having that interval session. And what you just did is not only are you fasting, so nutritionally your body's trying to recover and stressed out, but now you're stressing it out and breaking down muscle tissue. And you're breaking down muscle tissue to such an extent that it's going to be that, that much harder to adapt. And really your body's not going to adapt too much. You actually just did the opposite. And your body's now hyper stressed out. So if you're going to fast, and again, a lot of people, it's gotten, it was real popular back, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and, you know, with all the fasting, morning cardio, fasted morning cardio. If you're going to do that, just stick to steady state. Just stick to steady state because that is a very low stress response. It's going to help with just the digestive things that you're going along with, with fasting and help you recover, you know, a little bit better afterwards, but you're not going to, hyper stress out your body and release too much cortisol. And I see it a lot in the gym where people, everyone's, it's almost like everyone's into fasting and high intensity, you know, fasting in intervals, but they're doing it together now. But that's two huge stresses now we just put on the body at the same time. So yeah, we, how are you going to recover from that? And a lot of people don't. And I actually, you know, I've, tried it myself just to see what happened because I'm, I'm I'm big on being in the guinea pig for myself for a lot of things because I think if I can't do one rep of something, then I probably shouldn't be telling someone else to do it. Or if I haven't done it, I probably shouldn't tell, be telling someone else because I haven't done it. And it sucks. <laughs> you know, it, it you feel like you, you, you just lost a training session because your body was working on the fasting component and yet you just stressed it out even more with doing intervals. And you just broke down muscle instead of helped gain muscle or help, you know, build upon what you're trying, your goal is. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I just experienced that in the gym last week, when in the morning was trying to press overhead, kettlebell press. And I thought I was going to pass out because yeah. I was like, I don't have anything to tank up and get this overhead. Yeah. And that's where a lot of times I've had clients and athletes, you know, I'll tell them if you're really into the fasting, if you can at least do for me, just have, you know, a little something, you know, have a little bit of protein, a little bit of carb before you start. You don't have to have this huge meal, especially nowadays. A lot of people are always in a rush where they got to train at five in the morning, you know, four or five in the morning. Oh, have a little bit of something before you start a training session. This is not the time and place if you're going to do that hard of training to be completely fasted. Because now you just took a nutritional stress where your body's trying to develop and keep you healthy that capacity. 
And now we just added a huge cortisol stress rate on top of that. So now we're going to feel – most people just feel like crap. But really what's happening is you're just breaking down muscle tissue at that point. Steady state-wise, if you're just going to go out for a little jog or anything like that in the morning, that's fine fasted because it's not a huge stressor. If anything, we all know and love the term that when you're doing steady state, you're burning fat. When you're going high intensity, you're burning carbs. Well, that's true to a, most of the extent because if you're doing steady state and you're fasted, well, that's the point of fasting is to help not only with that fat adaptation, but also to help with you know the brain neurochemistry and help your cells turn over in the digestive to help you know, digest better later on and, and again, activate AMPK, which does all the other fun metabolism gestures. So steady state will be fine because it's not a huge stress. <laughs> but you do you right. do that high intensity stuff. Again, the feel is real. Any bodybuilder test to trying to do a fasted resistance training session feeling like crap. And that's because you're just breaking down muscle at that point because you need some type of carb. You need some type of carb and some type of protein to be able to perform some, something at that high of a capacity. So when are stressors okay? Because I know you and Gabrielle are a huge fan of really pushing your guys's limits. Yeah. <laughs> so much so that we used to ruck all the way to Central Park. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, so I think stress is when stress is not okay, okay. I don't think there's ever a point where stress is not okay at all. I think that it'd be silly to say that there's that you're ever in a state where there's zero stress at all in your life, I guess, unless you live in the Himalayas and that's all you do is work on your stress. Maybe you don't have any, but I think the term I like to use is you're at, you're at peace with where your body's at and where you're going. Now that could be a form of not having a lot of stress, which I think everyone should have in their life. But I think a great time to have stress is when you're in the middle of workouts and you have a specific goal, you should be stressed at that point because if you're not getting stressed, you're not stressing the body, you're not adapting and you're not going to have growth. You're not going to have – you're not going to increase your performance. That's when you should have stress. Anytime you're trying to adapt and you're trying to get better, you should have stress. So anytime you're trying to recover, you should not have stress. So the ice bath is also a stress. So what's funny is – Ice bathing has gotten really popular, but it's shown over and over again in the research that if you just had a hard resistance training session, so that was that's a great stress. We want that stress because it's a little bit of inflammation. Inflammation is good. That helps us adapt and helps our muscles get stronger. That's how we get the hypertrophy. But say I just had a resistance training session and then I go in an ice bath immediately. Well, I just blunted that adaptation to the resistance training. So I'm not going to have the same hypertrophy, the same growth now because I just took away that inflammation that I needed, that stress I needed to get better. Ice bathing is a great stress to have maybe way after that session, like hours after. After endurance session, ice bathing is great because there's not a huge stress with steady state. So we can have a little bit of that stress in the ice bath afterwards or even just having it flat out completely separate is a great way to add in a little bit of a stress, especially if we're having a lighter day. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. There's a lot of ways in which you know stress is beneficial. It's stress is something you need, or else you don't grow mentally, physically, however you want to spin it, spiritually, emotionally. You need stressors. We all have those stressful people in our lives, and our muscles, just like our brain, our brain's a muscle. We need that stress, and 
the time and place that we don't need stress? Well, you probably don't want too much stress when you're at the dinner table with family. You probably don't want stress there. But in training, you need some form of stress or else you don't adapt. The adapt or die principle. You need that stress. When you're studying for a test, when you're reading, depending on what you're reading, maybe you're reading a hardcore research article or a hardcore novel, you probably have a little bit of stress. That's okay. They'll help you learn and grow and help you will probably memorize it better. If you're meditating, you probably don't want stress. You probably want to be able to let your body go into that rest and digest that, you know, as they say, parasympathetic return, which is just, you know, relaxation, rest and digest, period, so that you can recover. I think anytime yeah. you're recovering, you don't want stress. Anytime you're adapting, which is any form of training, any form of, you know, training, whether it means mentally or physically, you want stress. Yeah. For the people who have a hard time maintaining muscle mass. Mm -hmm. So we see it a lot with our Hashimoto's population. Mm -hmm. So low muscle mass, hard time maintaining muscle mass. Other than strength training, do you have any other, I don't know, recommendations? We've been playing with blood flow restriction. Ah, uh, yes. Katsu training. It's the Japanese start in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any other tips? Tricks? Yeah. So yeah, anyone who has trouble, especially the older population, younger population, I mean, everyone, it's safe to say that most people at some point have been a little bit discouraged that they're not gaining muscle mass. So I don't look at ripped as him. First of all, drop your comparisons because everyone's so different. You <laughs> know, when it comes to, you know, gaining muscle mass, you got to eat. I always go back to this. You have to eat big to get big. So if you want to gain muscle mass, you probably should be intaking more protein. You probably should be intaking more carbs. You probably should be intaking a more bulk of your nutrition because if you don't eat big, you're not going to get big. And that's, again, my little tidbit, my simple approach when it comes to nutritionally. But when it comes to resistance training-wise and just purely on fiber type is it's funny how even just 10 minutes a day of something high intensity can really change your fiber type and your muscle – your your muscle structure and your hypertrophy or your gains, you know, your gains, bro. When you're just doing something, whatever your intensity is, at least 10 minutes a day. So I've had, you know, clients, I've had athletes that, you know what, you, you have a long work schedule, you have this, you're a little frustrated, you can't gain muscle mass. How about you just give me 10 minutes in the morning? You just do 10 minutes of pull-ups or 10 minutes of push-ups or 10 minutes and we break it up each day and you just give me that and you go as hard as you can. And the rest of the day is yours. And that's that little spike in stress, that little spike in forcing your muscles to adapt, especially if your nutrition is, is sound and it's it's growing and growing, you're going to have a muscle adaptation. You're going to have a response. It's impossible for your body not to respond if you're, if you're training at that high of an intensity. Right. I think this next question is going to be a, it depends, <laughs> but how long or how much time before you start to see uh, muscle fiber type change if you aren't working out. Like let's say someone gets injured or you know, we know that after two weeks of bed rest, there's about a 30%-ish mm -hmm. decrease in muscle mass. And maybe it depends where the person's baseline starting point is. But mm -hmm. if you, I don't know, had an estimate, mm -hmm. how the change in the fiber type after so many days of not working out... Mm -hmm. We actually, we, when we did our study, you know, and a couple years back or actually with NASA that Andy did, 
and they performed, we actually saw that in the astronauts that went up to the space, they actually changed their fiber type in as little as 10 days. Now with the bed rest patients, say you're on bed rest, you just got hurt, you know, we've all been there. You can see in as little as a few weeks that fiber type shift. So it's not necessarily, it de- It depends actually, you know, it obviously depends on the individual, but as little as a few weeks, you're going to see that fiber type change. Now say you go back to training. If you prior to the injury were already trained, it's not going to take as long to get that fiber type and that muscle structure back to what it was pre-injury. But if you're untrained, it's going to take a couple months longer. It's going to take a little bit longer to see that fiber type shift. But when it comes to bed rest, it's going to be in as little as a few weeks. It's maximum six weeks you're going to see that fiber type change. So that's why it's so important for people who are even going into surgery to still be training. Correct. Correct. Because if you're already in, you know, I say this to athletes, clients all the time is, don't worry. You know, I say mentally to them, don't don't worry about it because guess guess what you have on everyone else? You were already trained. So even though you're hurt right now and you can't do the things you want to do, you were already trained. Your body doesn't forget. Your body doesn't forget what it, you just what you have done previously. It's like it's almost like riding a bike. It might take a little bit longer once you get back and you're coming back from injury to get to your peak, the peak peak you were at before you got hurt, but it's not going to take nearly as long as someone who came into an injury untrained. You're not starting from zero. As most most people mentally are like, oh, I'm starting from zero, I'm hurt, all this atrophy happened, my muscles are gone, they're never coming back. No, it, I, I call BS on that. They will come back and it will take that much, it won't take as long or nearly as long. It'll take maybe a couple months, max three months, and you'll have that shift back to where you need to be. If you're training appropriately, have the right supervision, have the right people, support staff around you, it will come back way quicker than you ever could imagine because your, your body does not forget what you did prior. Kara, you're doing such important work. When do you think this study that you're working on is going to get published? Yeah, so the goal is to have it published by next spring. Right now, I'm finishing up all the females, and you know, I graduate in December, which is exciting stuff. And hopefully, by December, you know, the, the my paper and the publication will be in its final process, and we can start getting out to different publishers and different journals and avenues. And you know, like normal research, there's a couple edits involved, a couple back and forths, and then it will get published. And where can people find you? Ah, so people can find me on Instagram. It's a funny Instagram name that I just kept my whole life. It's just Killer KO. It's kind of my nickname, but I just kind of kept it that way because I thought it was funny. Uh, it's just Killer K Zero. And then on Facebook as well, it's just Kara Killian. And, you know, you can always find me. I got a lot of information on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram, actually, for the most part. You can, I love questions, comments, feedback. They can always reach me out on Instagram or Facebook. Nice. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate it. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, 
or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys so much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.